Hey everybody, welcome to Campaign HQ. So one interesting political development I wanted to talk about in, in the midst of the pandemic is uh, Justin Amash, congressman from Michigan, frequent Trump critic, uh, has announced his intention to run for president. A lot of immediate reactions to that, I think, uh, in part colored by what happened in 2016, where the combination of, of Gary Johnson and Jill Stein votes was uh, no doubt a, a contributing factor to Hillary Clinton losing. I think it's far too early to jump to the conclusion that this is 100% negative for Biden. We're going to need some more time, some more data. Maybe at the end of the day, Amash doesn't run and ends up supporting Biden. And that data may be different based on the state. Obviously, he's from Michigan, so that's going to require a lot of, of, of study and attention. Maybe different in Florida, different in Arizona. But at the end of the day, if you're the Biden campaign, uh, you know, if you're going to win the presidency, you have to surmount every obstacle thrown in front of you. So you got to study this carefully. But but even if it's not 100 percent negative for Biden, maybe it's more mixed. Really having a good strategy for voters who may be torn um, between Biden and Trump and now look at Amash as a landing place. Those that might have leaned Biden, you know, you're going to have to have a strategy to, to speak to them and reach out to them and vice versa. So I wouldn't panic yet. Um, I think there's a lot more data that we need to look at. But if you're the Biden campaign, a good presidential campaign panics about everything. So uh, they're going to have to have a, a strategy and execute on that. You know, we're starting to see more and more polls. Uh, not surprisingly, I think there was an, uh, an outsized reaction to some of the polls at the beginning of the crisis that showed Trump's approval rating growing. You know, as I pointed out on this podcast, you know, it was natural to see some bump sort of a rally around the flag doesn't mean those people are going to vote for Trump for re-election, but also you saw governors with a much larger approval rating bump, um, you know, five, six times uh, the increase. And you're starting to see Trump's number settle back down, uh, overall approval into the, the low 40s, approval of his handling of the pandemic about the same. Uh, and, you know, you're beginning to see re-elect numbers across the board, you know, showing Biden winning most of the battleground states. So, um, you know, I think my suspicion is, you know, Trump's got a pretty um, high floor. So I, I wouldn't expect Trump to fall into the low to mid 30s. But, you know, my guess is he's going to fall a few more points over the next few months just because the economic uh, harm here is so profound and is going to reach so many people in this country. They're going to be very dissatisfied and think about what led to this. And I think the more people learn about how Trump underplayed the threat, um, and really thought about himself first and his own political prospects first, the country second. He's going to continue to hemorrhage a little bit. Um, I wouldn't get overly optimistic yet about some of the head-to-head -head polls with Biden and Trump because um, in a couple of states, you do see Biden in head-to-heads being north of 50%, and you'd like to see that. But you know, if a poll shows at 46-43 or 48-44, that's probably not a win number for Biden. Uh, and so this is all about getting enough vote and support to win. So that means some folks who uh, might have moved to undecided might come back to Trump. And, and that's clearly where they're going to be focused. Uh, last thing I'd say, the New York Times uh, has a story out this week featuring Brad Parscale and the Trump campaign. It's going to be in their magazine on Sunday uh, print, but it's online now. It's, it's definitely worth a read. You know, one, uh, I've always thought, whether it's in a military battle or certainly political battle or corporate battle, the more you can understand about your opponent, the, the smarter you're going to be. And so 
we should all spend as much time understanding what the Trump campaign is doing as the Biden campaign. So it's a good deep dive into their strategy and their tactics, particularly around use of technology and data. But it does point out, um, because the reporter started working on this months ago, you know, how much of the reelect was going to be predicated on Trump's story, a lot of it bullshit, but his story that he's built the strongest economy ever and he's fought for working class people. And, and, and you know, a lot of that is obviously now uh, been disrupted. So I think it's really a, a great story to look at to understand the scale of difficulty Trump's going to have right now. Now, again, given his enviable floor, which is, you know, pretty significant, and I think their fundraising advantage and their ability to register voters, uh, we're never going to be out of the woods in this election uh, unless the bottom were to completely fall out, as we saw, for instance, with George Bush uh, after Katrina in the latter part of his second term. But I think absent that, it does show that um, his ability to put together a re-election message, which at its core, you're asking people to rehire me for another four years, has been greatly jeopardized, both because of the economic situation, but I think his decision-making and his character have really been laid bare by this crisis in a way you would have expected some of the other crises uh, and comments and, and moments where Trump did head-scratching things would have created that. But because everybody's affected by this, I think people are going to judge him much more harshly, um, and he really can't get away with his normal BS. He'll be held to account. So speaking of being held to account, my guest today is John Meacham. Uh, I'm sure all of you know John, uh, a renowned American historian, author of so many terrific books, commentator on MSNBC, uh, former journalist and editor, but um, he's got a terrific new podcast series out called Hope Through History. It is um, in partnership with my podcast production company, Cadence 13. It's five episodes that, that looks at some moments of American crisis and presidential leadership during them. And I think you will find it hopeful, uh, as John, I think, hopes happens given his title, but also, uh, you know, really, I think, contrast Trump's handling of this crisis with really any historical norms of our former presidents, no matter ideology or no matter their party. So I would highly encourage you to check it out, uh, dropping episodes each week. Um, the one this week is um, features Winston Churchill, having just read The Splendid and the Vile, Eric Larson's terrific new book about that period. Uh, I really enjoyed it thoroughly and really, um, I think you'll learn a lot from it, be inspired by it and also be even more determined to make sure we restore that type of approach and, and president uh, to the Oval Office in the Situation Room. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Meacham. John Meacham, thanks for joining us on Campaign HQ. My pleasure. So I want to start with your podcast. So you've got a remarkable new podcast, five-episode series called Hope Through History. Um, I've listened to the first two episodes. This week's is as Churchill and, and talking about that really important period in history. So just talk about what gave you the idea uh, to put this together. Well, it's tragically, it's our current situation. The arrival of the pandemic, the, um, how to put it charitably, the uneven response uh, from the highest levels of our government got me thinking about lessons that we might be able to glean from the past. Not that the past is a GPS, right? You can't type in coordinates about wanting to get out of a crisis and it'll give you a, a clear path. Uh, that doesn't work that way. But it is a kind of diagnostic guide. You know, there are certain symptoms that recur that suggest 
what a condition is and what treatments have worked in the past. And so felt to me as though if we could climb inside other moments that felt insuperable, we might be able to glean some lessons that not simply would make us feel better, uh, but could be applicable to our current moment. Unfortunately, I don't think uh, there's anything in the public record of the last three or four years that suggests the president himself is capable of that kind of uh, growth and change. But the public matters enormously in these moments, as you know. Uh, Democracies are a covenant between the leaders and the led. And often change in America comes not from the powerful, but when the powerless attract the attention of the powerful. So it seemed to me that going back and looking at moments in real time would help us now that we're in a retrospective mode. Right. Well, I I can't recommend uh, it enough. I've listened to the first two episodes. So the first episode was on, you know, the pandemic of about 102 years ago. Uh, Second one uh, features Churchill and the Blitz and and World War II. And uh, tell our listeners the next three that you've got coming out. Uh, We're going to look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which Arthur Slazinger called the most dangerous hour in human history. And then two health crises, the pandemic of 1918, which the president insists on saying happened in 1917, which is one of the odder uh, (laughs) twitches of the moment. And then a very happy story in this sense, uh, polio, an epidemic that in many ways consumed the country from about 1916 sporadically through the early 1950s. And the battle, the search for a vaccine, how the private sector, the public sector intersected to actually produce a a better day in terms of health. Right. So um, I'm curious, you're a real historian of great renown. I'm an amateur historian. So um, that's a debatable, but go ahead. (laughs) Well, whether or not, you know, it wasn't too long ago. I remember the Clinton impeachment and, uh, you know, things of even the 08 financial crisis happened uh, really before social media took off. So, you know, it, what we kind of remember is the headlines and, the, you know, the evening news and the special reports. And it, I, I wonder, as you reflect on what we're going through here, and, and there's no doubt the economic um, crisis, much less the health crisis, will echo through through decades, if not generations. But um, it, it it seems like perhaps there's not an understanding of how historical this moment is. Am I wrong about, I just would love your perspective on that and how social media may or may not affect our view of how um, huge events are. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, To what extent in real time do we understand the scope and uh, scale of of something? Um, It's one of the reasons in terms of what I do, periodicals are so important. Uh, I'm writing about the civil rights movement uh, right now uh, for a short book on John Lewis and reading the Times and the Post and the wire services and the news magazines and Life magazine and Jet and Ebony. And it was pretty evident uh, from the sit-ins of 1960 through Selma to Montgomery in 1965 that people understood this was an existential struggle for over the nature of the country. Sometimes that's evident. Sometimes it's not. Uh, it's one of the reasons, actually, you historians have fun, um, is often presidential reputations, for instance, uh, including uh, 
we're at the beginning of this process with President Obama, we really don't know, actually, how history is going to view him because we don't yet know, outside of the financial crisis, what in his ensuing seven years or so will loom largest. Uh, Sometimes things that pass by without people paying much attention ends up being enormously important. My favorite example of this is one of the most important things George Herbert Walker Bush did was sign in July 1990 the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that was a big deal at the time, but it wasn't an ambient reality. Uh, And yet that piece of legislation signed improbably by a Republican president (laughs) has left a fingerprint on every public building in the United States. And it's something that has loomed larger the farther we've gotten away from it. And so part of the whole process of the historical conversation is trying to figure out what mattered in the long term that uh, did not seem to matter in the short term, and what mattered in the short term that seemed so important which, in fact, no one can really recall. And almost every scandal, so-called, tends to fall into that latter category. Uh, Harry Truman left Washington in January 1953 with about a 20% approval rating. And there were a bunch of scandals involving uh, kind of petty corruption that you can't get anybody in America to be able to describe at this point. But what do we remember him for now? We remember him for the Marshall Plan, for NATO, uh, for containment, for speaking bluntly, for early civil rights action. He was the first president to address the NAACP in 1947. He integrates the military. All of that now looms large, where in, in real time it was either controversial or people weren't paying as much attention. So that's the ordinary situation. How is this moment now going to feel? It entirely depends on the ultimate casualty rate and the economic fallout and whether it comes back, right, whether there are some bounces to this. If God willing and the scientists willing, there's a vaccine and a kind of a Marshall Plan for testing and we're more or less back to uh, our ordinary way of life in the fall, this is going to be a, an episode that can be studied for its the failures of crisis management and uh, a lack of foresight on the be- in the beginning, but it can be a very clear case study. If this continues to roll on, then it's more like the Depression. Then it's a year upon year upon year uh, of, an Im- of the impact of decisions made and not made. And so it's a very long-winded way of saying we don't quite know but one of the things history tells us is that it is the duration of the impact of something that tends to shape how we remember it. That's super helpful. Now, it's always a just hearing you talk. I mean, we're still revisiting the history and legacy of our very first president, you know, George Washington. So I'm curious, John, both through, uh, you know, all the remarkable books you've written, this podcast series, your, your academic work, journalist work, when you look when you think about the, because I think you make a really important point, which is it's people, often the powerless, who end up being um, the change makers and leading us out of dark days, but the powerful still uh, play a center stage role. And when you think about not necessarily policy decisions, but when you think about the 
attributes of leaders who've handled crisis well in this country, particularly presidents. Um, what, what is, where's the commonality and compare that a little bit to what we're seeing today from President Trump? The central characteristic of a successful crisis manager at the highest levels of the American government from April 30th, 1789, which is when George Washington took the first oath in uh, Manhattan unto this hour, is the capacity to acknowledge the centrality of fact and to learn from your mistakes. And to learn from a mistake in real time requires the capacity to admit that you made one. We would not be here. You and I would not be having this conversation if John Kennedy had not been able to acknowledge that he had screwed up the Bay of Pigs in April 1961 and he needed to get a stronger grip on the foreign policy national security apparatus. He comes into office. Uh, one of the great historical numbers done on anybody was what the Kennedy campaign did to Dwight Eisenhower in 1960. You're a... Uh, you have spent misspent some of your youth in the messaging business. Um, what um, what Arthur Slazinger and Sorensen and Bobby Kennedy and others did to portray Eisenhower as stasis as and Kennedy as the change agent is one of the most brilliant such moments in in American political history. Part of the revision of Eisenhower is that he wasn't as lethargic as everybody thinks, but they did it. Uh, we had to get America moving again, and to get it moving again, that presupposed that it was not moving. He comes in in uh, early 61. He wants to be like James Bond, uh, one of his favorite characters uh, in every sense, of course. Uh, he wanted to run foreign policy out of his back pocket. They loved counterinsurgency. They loved the idea of using the CIA. They didn't want to move armies across large land masses. They, they thought they could... Uh, be more supple, uh, and more uh, quicker to react. Bay of Pigs comes along, total disaster. Kennedy walks around afterwards saying, in a parliamentary system, I'd have to resign. He says, how could I have been so stupid? And I just cleaned that up for you. What does he do? He does something incredibly brave. He doesn't give a press conference and say, he doesn't take responsibility. He doesn't give a press conference and call up the heads of American corporations to say, wow, isn't he great? He doesn't give a press conference saying, but, 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 but I closed down travel to Havana. None of that. What he does is he calls Dwight Eisenhower, who'd retired over to Gettysburg with Mamie. And he, they uh, Ike comes over to Camp David. They have a meeting. Kennedy says, I didn't get this right. I need some help. Ike walked him through. He realized that Kennedy had not put all the stakeholders, all the decision makers in one room and had allowed himself as president to be spun by individual players, military, intelligence, etc. He said, you've got to put everybody in the same room. Cut to October 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. We came through the missile crisis, that horrible hour, not least because Kennedy had had the ability to say in 1961, I'm not doing this job well enough, and I've made a mistake, and I need to learn. Abraham Lincoln did the same thing. Go read the first inaugural uh, from March 4th, 1861. Lincoln says to the South, you have nothing to fear from me. 
I'm not, I'm not, I'm not coming after your slaves. But in, by September 62, uh, culminating on January 1st, 1863, he issues the Emancipation Proclamation because he realized he had been both morally and militarily wrong. Still very practical, right? The, you know, the, the Emancipation Proclamation did not free every enslaved person. It freed the enslaved people in the states where Lincoln had no power, which was the succeeded states, because he needed to encourage defections. He wanted to give uh, African Americans behind enemy lines hope and enable, empower them to join the Union cause. So it's, it's, it's complicated, but the common denominator there is a president who was willing to look at what he was doing and say, this is wrong, I need to do it better. Right, and have the strength to do that. Because even though you didn't have social media in those days, you had plenty of critics, right, who would jump on oh my God. changing course and, and even more you know, tough language than we see today. Speed is relative, right? I, I, I go a little crazy about this when people say, oh, it, it's never been worse. Andrew Jackson shot people, you know, uh, Hamilton and Burr, you know, it's speed is relative. If you weren't used to a newspaper culture, a partisan newspaper culture, and you got a paper every week or every month, but you had never gotten one before, guess what? That's an 18th century, 19th century superhighway. You know, suddenly you were seeing reactions in real time, whereas we'd been in a largely oral or um, very occasional periodical culture. I, I know it's it feels different. Uh, one of the scariest moments I had, I'm sure you've had these, was about three or four years ago now. And I was talking to a very senior United States senator. And we were having roughly this conversation about, was it really worse? And I was saying, you know, was it, you know, this is a Southern senator. I said, you know, Russell and Eastland and Stennis, you know, th these guys were all filibustering civil rights, for God's sake, you know, and that doesn't seem like a great heroic moment. And they were getting attacked from the citizens' councils on the right and the Klan on the right, and then uh, liberals and uh, African-American activists on the left, you know, that I don't think anybody would have signed up for that. And this guy pulls out his telephone, his mobile phone, and he shows me he has a list of all of his social media mentions that his staff has set up for him. And he said, I follow this all day long. And I thought, oh, my God, James Madison just spun around in his grave <laughs> because we, you're not supposed to do that. Right. Edmund Burke taught us, you know, the theory of representation is on some occasions you reflect the will of Twitter. <laughs> but the greatness comes, the portrait moments come when the eulogy moments come, when you don't reflect the will of the people who sent you but you give them your best judgment. And I've tried this to no effect whatever, but I'll say it one more time. If I had five minutes with President Trump, highly unlikely, I would say, what do you want us to think when we look at your portrait? Because we're going to look at your portrait a lot longer than you're going to be in this news cycle. Why not appeal to their vanity? Politicians can't imagine a world where we're not gazing at their portraits, you know, so it, it has that effect, that virtue. And when you think about it historically, what do we remember about Nixon positively? That he went to China. 
What do you remember about Lyndon Johnson from a segregated state? That he became a champion of civil rights. What do you remember about Ronald Reagan? That this cold warrior comes and uh, negotiates with Gorbachev incredibly effectively. We remember presidents who challenge our assumptions. And the, peop- the presidents who do incredibly well historically are the ones who don't simply follow slavishly the dictates of their base, but bring the base closer to where the country itself wants to be. So I'm curious, as you, with your historical lens, as you watched this unfold in February, um, which, you know, I think it's it's not partisan to say, had we taken this more seriously, um, kind of rallied the country, um, prepared for the worst, we wouldn't have had the number of deaths when we certainly wouldn't have had a severe and economic toll. So Trump bears responsibility, I think, for being asleep at the switch in February. But But as you watched that, um, both in terms of, you know, you obviously follow Trump very carefully, although he's only been in office uh, for one term. And you look at the historical lens. I'm just curious what you saw that might have been um, reflected in mistakes presidents had made in the past. I had two worries. One was, and tragically, they've both been borne out. One was that because this was complicated, because it involved science and because it involved experts, he would, in his anti-intellectual way, resent being told facts that did not comport with his version of reality. So I, I worried about that almost instantly. The second thing I worried about, which I think also is, and we're going to see more of this in the next couple of weeks, months, is, and I actually, I think I actually prayed, I said, Please don't let this become a partisan pandemic. Please let's not break this down along these tribal grooves in the road that we've dug. You know, let's be driven by fact. Let's do what we have to do and solve it because this is not a political thing. It's a clinical thing. And it just, you, now on the specific things about presidents who've risen to the occasion, you know, thought about George W. Bush, uh, who really became president uh, in the days after September 11th. And we can argue for the rest of uh, the year about Iraq, but it is blessedly the case that there were no significant attacks on the homeland after September 11th. And that's a story that's unknown at this point historically, but will have to someday become known. Um, That was a positive story in in, in that sense. Uh, He rose to an occasion. Um, And I I will say this, and I'm a fairly optimistic guy, because look, hey, here we all are, right? No one, no one's leaving the country. Um, you can't now because you can't get a plane. But um, you know, every you know, you know this. You and I have friends who do this. 
before every presidential election, everybody in Manhattan says, oh, if the Republican wins, I'm going to leave the country. Well, you know, Alec Baldwin's still here, right? I mean, everybody's still here uh, fighting along and trying to bend the arc toward justice, however they see that. All that said, I didn't have a great deal of faith that the president would be able to govern in a suprapartisan way in the midst of a crisis, simply because of his temperament and character. There's been no evidence whatever that he could do that. And it's why, in the end, what people, the kind of work I do and and my friends and colleagues do, I think is rewarding. Is this, if you're looking for proof that the character and temperament of the person you send to the pinnacle matters, I refer you to the last five months. I mean, my God, what what would President Obama have done seeing these warnings coming? You know, what would President Clinton have done? George W. Bush was good on this issue. You know, if you can follow facts and see that, and again, I'm not asking these people to be Jesus and just be totally self giving. I'm not talking about that. But it's in a president's self-interest to govern well when the chips are down, because in the fullness of time, you're going to get credit for that. And I, I honestly don't understand. I'm just puzzled as to why a person as self-evidently vain as President Trump has failed to see that that's a ground on which he should be fighting. Why why always go for winning the half hour and not winning the half century? I just don't get that. It's a great puzzle. No, and you know, he's obviously not a chess player, but you know, that would be playing checkers and often he's not capable of that. So as you mentioned, John, we are in an election year. This is a presidential re-election year. And I, I want to talk about the upcoming election, but but start with a question. When when I tell people that there's never been a president as obsessed, singularly obsessed with re-election as Donald Trump, people say, well, that's that can't be true. They're all, that's all they care about. And I say, well, I worked in a White House during the last incumbent re-election. Uh, the President Obama held me responsible for his re-election. And I can assure you <laughs> to the source of great frustration with me that the campaign did come second. And I think that's true. I'm not saying it wasn't important, but your point about Bush and Clinton and Reagan all had re-elections. But you know, that job of being president, um, there's often a conflict between what's in your narrow to midterm political self-interest, even when you're the one on the ballot in the country. And I do think, if, and I'm just curious, when you look historically, and, and we've had um, some people who were um, had more than a passing interest in get reelected, maybe all of them, but we've never seen someone like Trump. And I think so much of the the the, the difficulty we're in is because he envisioned his reelection and it would be, we have a great economy and he wanted to run Reagan like ads. And this um, ran counter to that. And he wanted to not lose that sort of sense of reality he had. And, and I don't even know if, the, you know, there's a narcissism that's part of that, but I think he is because he feels like his first election victory was not considered by legitimate by all, right? This is his driving passion. So speak a little bit about that. Just we've had a lot of presidents through the years run for re-election. Most won, a couple didn't. But but we've never seen somebody this obsessed. Well, that's putting, I agree with you. I, and it's giving at least some rationality 
to the irrational ways in which he has worked, right? I mean, and the only thing I would might dispute with you, and maybe you have reporting and insights on this, is that at least that line of analysis at least rationally explains his inability to react to contrary data, right? That he just didn't want to see it because of his reelection. That's certainly possible. I wonder if it's, there's something more fundamental, which is that he didn't want to see it because he simply is incapable of contemplating a world that's beyond his manipulation. And the, the two are not in direct contravention to each other. But, it, but what I, the scenario I'm kind of throwing out is I don't think he's a rational actor. And I have not been a crazy anti-Trump person. Um, again, w- look, uh, I'm a white Southern Christian. Um, I always do fine in America. Uh, but if you're an African-American, if you're a woman, if you uh, were gay or had, were not part of sort of the, the, the classical mainstream, you have had centuries of alienation in this country. So I, I, I say all this with the full awareness of that. He's just not a rational figure. And you know this, in foreign policy, the key thing you always ask about a foreign leader is, are they a rational actor? Right. It's the first question, and really the most important question. And I don't know that he is. Um, and maybe it's all directed at re-election, and... And, you know, again, at least that gives it some some coherence. I just worry that he's even more incoherent than than that. Um, in terms of historically, look, it, it mattered enormously to Lyndon Johnson that he win big in 64 uh, because he had not been elected. Uh, he obviously succeeded after Dallas. Uh, President Nixon was clearly obsessed. In fact, that led to Watergate. Uh Am I, I remember I was a kid at high school and, you know, Clifton White, remember him? The, uh, he, yeah, he was the, the guy behind Barry Goldwater's, uh, uh, takeover of the Republican party. And somehow or another, he ended up at this high school in Chattanooga in the 1980s. And, um, I remember being at lunch with him when he'd spoken and somebody asked him about Watergate. And he said, the central thing about Watergate is if you're a presidential campaign and you don't know what's going on in the party chairman's office, you shouldn't be running. Uh, you should just know in, in, intrinsically. Um, you know, Reagan was not as obsessed with it as as you would think. Uh, President Bush Sr., for a lot of reasons, including health, uh, he was fighting Graves' disease at the time, uh, was a little was close to what you were describing with President Obama. He could the, the people in charge of the reelection could could not get him to focus uh, for a long time uh, on the on the issue. So I think it I think it depends. Uh, and what matters most, it seems to me, is and I'd love please tell me if you think this is just crazy. Um, I've been trying to think out what's the persuadable part of the population. Right. This is this is pre-pandemic, but it, it applies even now. You know, who are the people who are really going to decide whether 
Trump gets a second term or or we give Biden a shot. And I've come down to a, a, a back of the envelope number that there's about 10 percent of the country that is persuadable. And I base this on this. I went back and looked at the numbers of Democrats and Republicans who told exit pollsters from 1952 forward that they had crossed the aisle to vote for the other party. I figured that was actually a fairly coherent metric of bipartisanship. Because why would you lie about that? You know, if, if you're if you're going to say you're the if you're in one party and you're crossing the aisle, uh, Eisenhower, Johnson, Nixon—they all got huge numbers of the opposite party. The number begins to go down partly because after 1972, 40 percent of Democrats voted for Nixon in 72, but most of those Democrats became Republicans, right? Going going forward, but nine percent of Democrats voted for W in 2000, and 13% of Republicans voted for Obama in 08. And now we're down to you know, just de minimis numbers. Seems to me that somewhere between 9 and 13 is probably the number of folks who, who would be reachable. And I think that so much of the country, so much of our common life depends on where that 10%, where those 10% are. You know, are they in the right six or seven states? Does that number feel right to you, roughly? Well, I think in the core battleground states, it might be slightly less than that. But, you know, uh, Trump makes the, these numbers a little more unpredictable and volatile on both sides, right? So he does have the ability to win some Democrats um, and some Democratic-leaning independents. I think any Democrat against Trump has the ability to win some suburban voters who who might have even voted Republican in 18, despite how well the Democrats did. So I think that number is larger. And I think when you add uh, a pandemic and an economic crisis on top of it, there is more volatility. So so I agree with that very much. No, right. Nixon is the right example. But, you know, um, you know, I've tried to read all the books that have all the transcripts of Nixon's conversations and all the historical accounts from people like Ehrlichman and Haldeman. So while he was obsessed, he also, you know, made some tough decisions and he still governed. I mean, it's it's so Nixon did have that pathology. Trump seems incapable of that. I'm curious, though, as you look at, you know, we have had presidential reelections at time of great crisis. Lincoln back in 1864, obviously Woodrow Wilson um, uh, in his uh, reelection. You had Roosevelt and really all of his um, even Obama in in 12. We were we were coming out of the economic crisis, but but still uh, really severe. Any lessons there for the Trump campaign? Like, as you look about uh, presidents who successfully got reelected at moments of crisis, uh, any lessons there? Yeah, and it, it's slightly counterintuitive. And tell me if you you agree. Um, to my mind, presidential elections, whether they're open seat or reelections, are not referenda; they're choices, and. So it's not as though we had a moment in 2016 where someone came to the country and said, would you like Donald Trump to be your president? That wasn't the choice. The choice was, of these two people, who would you like to be president? That's an important point, yes. And so my view is that this is like the Pepsi challenge. And so it matters what the choice is. So in... 1864 is almost impossible to analogize from. Uh, but Wilson, uh, you know, was a fairly popular figure, uh, kept us out of war, uh, 
for five more minutes. Um, uh, Roosevelt, you know, we were, we would have been okay if Wilkie had won in 1940. Um, uh, 1936 was, you know, every, every state except Maine and Vermont, FDR carried. Alf Landon, perfectly nice man, but, uh, but that was not, um, that was not a Republican year. Uh, but that 1940 race was considered close up until the very end, correct? It wasn't all that. It was pretty close anyway, which is something you know. Right, uh, right. When people talk about, oh, the good old days, you know, to get to get a 60-40 election, you really only had LBJ in 64, Nixon in 72, and Reagan in 84. Uh, let's see, we've had seven presidential elections since 1992. And in four of those seven, the person who became president did not get above 50%. Your man did twice, uh, and W did in 04. But that's how divided we've been for a biblical generation now, for 20 years, uh, is that we haven't had a 50-plus popular vote winner actually winning the Electoral College. So we're on a knife's edge in any event. Um, I think the lessons, what I would be watching for over the next six months or so in, in this presidential election will be to what extent has, to use a cliche, to what extent has the political marketplace discounted Trump's madness and Biden's age and who's willing to overlook that, overlook those issues and come down one one side or the other. Um, my other theory, uh, I'm just giving you all my theories today. Uh, my other one is, and I ran this by your old boss, and he agreed, so I have that going for me, um, is that I, I'm a big believer that much of the Trump era has was prefigured in some way or another by the American past. That it, this is as if... Strom Thurmond won in 48 or Wallace had won in 68. Um, you know, he's Trump was until in, until things got have gotten really bad. He was a difference of degree, not of kind. Here's the opposite case. Briefly, one way to think about modern American life is that from 1933 to 2017, we were governed by a kind of figurative conversation between Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. There were two central questions, the relative role of the state in the marketplace and the relative projection of force against commonly agreed upon foes and rivals. And we could argue ferociously, and we did, on that field, but we were all on the same field. This is not a sequential conversation, uh, a sequential chapter in that conversation. This is a different kind of political and cultural moment, largely because of the temperament and character of the person at the very top who has managed to weaponize some of the worst elements of the American character, which are perennial, right? I mean, look, if we get things right 51% of the time, that's a hell of a good era. You know, we build monuments, we have parades. Um, Biden has an, it seems to me, as a historian who watches the news, it seems to me that Biden has a very good chance here of arguing that he is a restoration candidate 
for a consensus that was not about lassitude or agreement, but was about a commonly accepted set of options. And I think, it, I, to me, if, if it's a fairly high-minded way of putting it, I guess. But sometimes I think about this. Uh, a buddy of mine who used to be the, uh, imagine being the chairman of the Tennessee Democratic Party in 2010. It was like being the radar operator at Pearl Harbor. Uh, he said brilliantly, uh, Gray Sasser, that basically what we have is Trump wants to take us back to 1956, and Biden wants to take us to 1965. And that's a pretty astute way of putting it, actually. Well, what's interesting about that is, you know, there may be some who react strongly that, you know, that's the wrong message. But, you know, I think the truth is, if Biden can, um, I think, nail the presentation, as you just described, you know, that's something that works for an 82-year-old swing voter in Wisconsin. And quite frankly, uh, a 19-year-old college student on, on the campus at Madison, right? To your point, not because it's, it's less about a specific issue or policy, right? It is uh, a general sense of how we operate in the world and our values. So I think that is the test. I'm curious as you think about Biden and Johnny, been generous with your time. So last question. So maybe the vaccine will come online um, sooner than we think, or there will be a treatment um, that even pre-vaccine uh, relieves some of the health tension. Maybe the economic hole will be more of a V-shaped recovery and we won't be dealing with this uh, for years and years. But it seems more likely than not that if Joe Biden were to win this November, his presidency, at least the first half of it, will be defined by, uh, you know, the decisions he makes uh, and how he leads us through this recovery. And I'm just curious if you look historically, any lessons there for him? And I am, I'm struck by, you know, history, for the most part, what history won't do is you know, reward a bad decision, right? So because history looks at something over a period of time and says, even if that was viewed at the, as a bad decision at the moment, right, or was politically risky or tough, um, it ultimately was the right decision for the country. So I'm just curious as Biden goes into this, because I don't think there is a tension really between doing the right thing for the moment and doing what's going to be right, you know, five, 10, 50 years down the road. It's just the pain of, of, of that conflict, in the, you know, can be pretty intense, particularly with social media. So I'm just curious, as you think about uh, a Biden pres presidency, if that were to happen, um, kind of how you think about that compared to some other historical times. I think that the former vice president shares with, and I keep talking about him, uh, President Bush Sr. Um, and Obama, actually. I think all three of them have a sense, had a sense in President Bush's case, that one of the tragedies of history is that you don't get credit for keeping bad things from happening. But that's a huge part of the job. Right. Right. And it's, you know, that sort of Reinhold Niebuhr meets roll call right there. Um, and they were willing to, Bush and Obama could articulate that tension and count on history to sort it out. I think Biden has the same capacity. It is as far removed from Donald Trump's worldview and emotional uh, capacities as you can imagine. Uh, 
because it is, in fact, the definition of statesmanship as opposed to popular political leadership. My sense even before this, and you tell me, my sense even before the pandemic was that Biden was presenting himself, not to be overly clever, but he was basically presenting himself as a vaccine to the Trump era anyway. Right. Right? Yep. You know, he was go- we were going to stabilize the patient. Restore the soul of the nation. Yeah. Restore the soul of the country, you know, um, and just... My my private way of putting it, it to to friends, they'd say, "Well, I'm not all that inspired." I say, "Look, you aren't supposed to be inspired. You're supposed to get the patient in an oxygen tent and stabilize this thing." And I think this is simply not simply, but I think this has exacerbated and deepened that task. And I think that the vice president, I think I can say this. I think he understands that his role as president would be as a crisis manager and almost like Fortinbras at the or one of the one of the act 5 heroes from Shakespeare who comes in at the end looks around at all the bodies on the stage and tries to restore order and i think this is a fortinbras strategy and you just need it seems to me there are moments in history where having four to eight years to catch our breath, and it'll be more creative and more interesting than that. Certainly, when you think about the hectic nature of, say, the 1960s, which really extended into the 70s, we had five American presidents in 20 years, from 1960 to 1980. In many ways, President Reagan played this kind of role. Now, Reagan was more of a revolutionary, uh, I understand that, a, a monumental figure. This is not to diminish his his, uh, his role in history in any way. But his argument was not unlike the one that Biden is going to have to make, which is that there are good elements in the American character. They have been buffeted by history. We need to have more confidence and more faith in ourselves and enable the light in us to shine a little more brightly. And I think that that's a pretty compelling argument. And it you don't have to, you know this vastly better than I do, you don't have to convince 60% of the country that you're right. Only 50, maybe 49 and a half, depending on third parties. No, No, you're right. And I think that was a... Uh, if not compelling, uh, uh, certainly a potential winning message pre-pandemic. But I think, uh, you know, during and, and uh, during this pandemic, which will be with us all the way through November, no matter where it goes, uh, even potentially more compelling. The only thing I want you to do, if you can, is can't you get him out on the porch or in a garden or something? Yeah. Well, m- yeah, my old colleague and I, David Axwright, were talking about this. I think that, uh, you know, there's walking the dog and there's the kitchen and there's the porch. I think the the Biden in the basement, I know the lighting's good down there, but we live in a time where some of the most compelling video is actually not how professional it looks, right? But uh, it's all about what you say. So, And I think if you can't afford good lighting, hell, you know, we can raise that now. <laughs> yeah, well, you're right. maybe we can light the kitchen too, but I, I, think, I, think that, uh, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Well, John, uh, thank you for your time today, your, your terrific insights and always. And 
uh, I can't write, uh, can't wait to read your book on, on John Lewis. But also, um, this podcast series, Hope Through History, is is incredibly important and informative, and it's just great that you've brought your voice to that uh, during this really, um, you know, critical time. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Well, I could listen to John Meacham all day long. I would have asked him a uh, hundred more questions, not just about the moment we're in, but about all the different periods of American history that he has studied. And, um, you know, I think it, what was remarkable to talk to John, it was just to understand, we know it, but to be reminded by a historian how much of an outlier the Trump presidency is in every way. And I think that uh, that desire to return to some sorts of normalcy. I, I know it, it's not the most exciting message, but I, I do think John's right that ultimately, particularly with the pandemic and the economic crisis that we're going to be living through for some time, you know, Biden kind of being a vaccine to Trump, you know, not his own version of Trump, I think is something that we're aware well with a lot of voters out there. We're ultimately going to see in this election if that's true. Um, but again, I think a terrific conversation with John, who I always learn from, but it just really comes into stark reality for me. We knew Trump was an outlier. I think this crisis has made it e- even more so. Uh, but when he talks about how presidents of, of different parties and different backgrounds and different ideology at moments of crisis, you know, there was a lot more commonality than not in terms of their approach. And this is another place where Trump has really broken those norms and we're, we've paid a huge price for it. It's, it's a stark and I think healthy reminder that we're not crazy, That that in fact, this is something we we didn't think we'd see in America, quite frankly, a president who behaves in this way. And hopefully we don't have to ever again. And I don't think we're going to beat Trumpism entirely if we beat Trump in this election. But I think we can go a long way to making sure someone like that, uh, of that lack of character, of that narcissism, who, who's just not interested in expert opinion or in history, uh, never gets anywhere near the Oval Office again. So I hope you enjoyed that discussion and we'll be back next week and look forward to... Uh, Spending more time with you next week on Campaign HQ.